Amen. Please be seated. This Advent season, I've chosen to just save one sermon that would be particularly reflective on Christmas and the Advent uh, event, the coming of Christ, and the looking forward to Him coming again a final time. This is the fourth Sunday, of course, in Advent, and I would like to take you on a short thematic journey through Scripture to the manger scene itself. Every year we use Advent as a time to give special consideration concerning the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth, Christ the God-man. So I will begin with a passage from Paul, and I will end with a passage from Paul, and in between... I would like to peruse all that God worked together to bring us to the point of considering the baby in the manger. Hear God's word in Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. It's there printed for you in your outline. The word of God says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And the phrase that will prompt our thematic journey is verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Let's pray. Father, we read in these words something of a culmination. Lord, help us not to see this text in a vacuum or not consider the Christmas event in a vacuum, but rather be drawn to greater appreciation for all you have made come to pass to bring us to this point so that we can see your handiwork, give you praise, and recognize its personal application to each of us as your sons and daughters in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we label something a monumental event, we do so because of its importance. A monumental event is usually history-altering. It's life-changing. It's very often unprecedented. We might call a monumental event historic or epic. Monumental event, if it's truly monumental, will change things. Well, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem was a monumental event. Aside from the death and resurrection of Jesus, the birth of Christ may well qualify as the monumental event of history. In addition to all the aforementioned traits of things we call monumental, the birth of Christ was also prophecy-fulfilling and miraculous. That's different than many other monumental events. Prophecy-fulfilling in that Christ's birth brought a centuries-old promise of God to historical reality, prophecy fulfilling. Messiah, the anointed one, had come. Miraculous. Christ was conceived in the womb of a virgin named Mary. He had no biological father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Never a one had been born like that before, and never will one come forth in the same way again. The birth of Christ, indeed, is history-altering, life-changing, unprecedented, historic, epic, prophecy-fulfilling, and miraculous. And every one of us ought to do as Mary did, treasure up these things in our hearts, 
and ponder them. Now, as a way of assisting us in pondering the birth of Christ anew, I would like us to take a thematic cruise through the scriptures. I think you will notice one of the most vivid interplays in all of the Bible. There are many themes, but there is an interplay between shame and glory, human shame and divine glory, that plays out throughout the scriptures. We think of it as corruption and redemption. We think of it as grace versus the condemnation that we have. Sin and grace. Man's shame, God's glory. And don't fret, we're not just talking about God's generic glory that would be true if he hadn't moved to save anyone. We're talking about his redemptive glory, how he brings glory to himself against the backdrop of my shame, your shame, our shame. This is where his grace is seen most boldly. In the history of human shame confronted by God's redemptive glory is seen most clearly in the incarnation of Jesus himself. Let's take that journey together, starting at Genesis 3. Now I will tell you part of the backdrop of the story, and I'll have the reference there for you. But listen as I speak regarding these various waypoints in history, redemption history as we call it. The shame starts early for mankind, doesn't it? In Genesis 3 already, we see the fall of man, where man chooses for himself uh, to go against God's plan, his prohibition, to be God. At least that was the mindset of Adam and Eve as they took. And they shamefully listened to Satan as they took of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Think of the shame that was in the garden. They were given a perfect garden, everything. Don't eat of this tree. And they chose to challenge God's authority. They thought they were equal, even superior. They thought they could get away with sin. After they had sinned, they were ashamed. They knew they were naked. The story of the fall oozes with shame. Everything about it is embarrassing to us as we read it. We see regret. We see shame, separation, disfellowship. Nowhere is the shame of man probably more clear than in that original fall. But it's at this point, the point of ultimate shame that God speaks a glorious word of redemption. We don't come to the manger scene without this word spoken in Genesis 3, verses 13 through 15. After the fall, after man sins, the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We have this glorious confrontation the fall of man, the ultimate point of shame with the glory of the plan of redemption, the gospel given this early. You know, it's okay if you want to divide the Bible into pieces, but it's only two, before the fall and after the fall. Do you know in the scriptures, there are some 1,200 chapters? Out of those 1,200 chapters, we would have to say accurately that 1,198 of them come after the fall and involve the grace of God to us sinners. That's where we are. The glorious telling of redemption ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Christ in the manger. But this isn't where the shame ends. You know it and I know it. 
Uh, after Adam and Eve go on from there and they have their children, sin still continues to have its way with mankind. You would think that God had forgotten uh, what he had done in promising to send one to crush the head of the serpent. And you come to the story in Genesis 6 and Genesis through Genesis 9 where the earth had become corrupt with mankind. And the glorious word of redemption is a distant memory now. Shame and tragedy flow from the garden. As the generations went on, man rebelled against God. In just three chapters from that word of redemption spoken, we see the shameful words written in Genesis 6 and following. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took them as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days will be limited to 120 years. Later in that same chapter, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry they made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and the animals and the creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. What a shameful mess mankind had become. Now, there is much complexity in Genesis chapter 6, no doubt. But suffice it to say that man had collectively rebelled against God in a widespread, tragic, shameful way. Yet again, it is against this backdrop that we read in Genesis 6, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I know the traditional reading can sometimes lead us to believe that God perused the earth and saw one good guy. But it's said before that that everyone's thoughts were evil continually all the time. I would submit to you that he chose to have favor on Noah. And that's why, that's what it says in verse 8, that's why verse 9 follows by saying, and these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. I would submit to you that if the pattern of Scripture holds true to Noah, that it was because God showed favor to him that he was righteous in his generations. And God was going to keep to his word in Genesis 3 by preserving mankind. Even though he wanted to wipe them out, he kept one family so that the seed who would ultimately come to crush the head of the serpent would be preserved. That's a glorious word of redemption against the backdrop of great sin. Verse 11 in chapter 6 of Genesis says, The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with, destroy the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and he goes through designing the ark for him, where he saves a family. That family is used to continue the seed. So the seed of the woman would come forth to crush the head of the serpent. Against the backdrop of great shame, this interplay continues through Scripture. It continues in our lives. Even in the midst of the sin and misery, his family, Noah's family, is preserved. And you know what? We might be tempted to make Noah or any of the big guys of the Bible heroes. But the fact is, how did Noah celebrate? He got hammered. He got drunk right after this happened. That's his response to the righteous salvation, redemptive act of God. There's not room for man to be the hero in this picture. There's the shame of humanity in the glory of God's redemption that shines forth for us in this picture as well. Well, probably the most vivid picture of this shame versus glory happens with another well-known figure of the Old Testament, Abraham. 
Abram first and then Abraham later. You have there the shame of unbelief, but yet it's against the glory of the magnificent promise that God gives. You remember between Noah and Abraham, you had the Tower of Babel incident where the earth started going the same way it went before the flood, where people were opposing God. They built a city and built a tower to get in the face of God and to rebel against God. The difference on this side of the flood, though, is God had only allowed people to live 120 years or less. So the full uh, play out of their sin would never happen because people would die soon enough, but there was great rebellion going on. God worked to disperse the nations, and then the nations went on, but majority of these folks that are out there now, they're, they're ranked pagans, essentially, not acknowledging God, and from that group of ranked pagans, he calls a guy named Abram. I mean, nothing about Abram would endear himself to God. He was just one of the other unbelievers on earth. But God, keeping with his promise, picks Abram and picks him out from the Ur, the Chaldees and speaks to him an incredible word of promise. In, G- in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just that one nation, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him, Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Remember, 120 is the limit. He's already 75 when he's called. So they took their stuff and they went. Now, that's great, wonderful. I know that Abram gets a lot of credit for listening to God there. and He gets a lot of credit for his obedience to God to almost sacrifice his son Isaac later, no doubt. But if you did an honest look at Abraham's reaction, you know what happens the chapter after the very chapter after God speaks to him and reveals his promise, almost the first thing Abraham does is lie about Sarah as his wife just to save his own hide. That's the man of faith. That's the truth of us mixed up people, right? One minute, this great action to move, as God tells the very next minute, we're lying to save ourselves. We're introduced to the city of Sodom. We see that sin has overtaken it. We see Abram's uh, relative Lot living there. And even Lot's wife doesn't ever want to leave there when when Abram works to have them rescued. But then we come to chapter 15 of Genesis. God responds, you might say to Abram, by saying in a vision, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, Abram can't say the rewards because something he did. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer the Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars. If you were able to number them, then he said to him, Shall your offspring will be also. And he believed the Lord, and it, counted, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. Uh, but he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring to me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove. And he went through the ceremony, a covenant ceremony of commitment to Abram to do what he said he would do. Against the backdrop of Abram's brokenness and shame, The word of glorious redemption is spoken. And what would you think Abram's great response would be to Genesis 15? It's got to be good, right? Look what he's done. He believed it was counted unto him as righteousness. Well, in Genesis 16, Abraham impregnates Hagar. That's how he responded. 
Hey, that's us. That's what human beings do. That's how we act. Shamefully, impregnates Hagar in order to force the promise of God, which causes terrible pain to Sarah, terrible pain to Hagar, pain to Abram going forward, and pain to this day between the sons of Abram, between the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael. How does God respond? Genesis 17, God conducts, at the age of 99 years old in Abram's life, the ratification of the covenant by giving them the sign of circumcision to mark them as God's people. Against the backdrop of human sin, misery, and shame, God speaks constant words of grace and redemption to his people. This glorious retelling of redemption that happens throughout the scripture brings great honor to God who's doing this work. It doesn't stop there. You remember the time of Moses, right? The shame of the disobedience of the people. It's amazing how God calls Abram's great-grandson Joseph to Egypt where he incubates that nation into two million people. And they started out on the good side of Egypt. By the time uh, Joseph's progeny had reached Moses' day, the Pharaoh didn't know him anymore like that. And they were slaves in a terrible predicament. And God raises up Moses from the people who had long since really gone back on their close tie to their covenant God and raises up Moses from their midst to raise to bring them out of Egypt. And we read in Exodus 3, this glorious word of redemption against the backdrop of the shame and misery of their slavery. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him and said out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You see, the shame keeps coming in, but the word of redemption keeps arriving right at the right time. Moses connected to all those promises of God. Those people don't just represent the shame and failure. They represent redemption, what God had done to continue his promise. And you know the story of Moses and Israel from this time out. Is it very pretty for the people of God in their obedience? No, it's the shame of disobedience despite incredible acts of God. The work of redeeming the nation is certainly not a credit to the leadership skills of Moses or the faithful obedience of the people. At virtually every opportunity, people doubted and complained. God sent ten plagues to them. Water to blood, gnats, flies, livestock disease, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, even the death of the firstborn. The people took the ticket out, but when they got to the other side, they almost immediately started complaining. We want food. We want water. Why have you led us to die out here? They just watched an army, the greatest army of its day, wiped out, and they're complaining right on the other side. Why'd you lead us here? We'd be better off there. Speaking like spoiled children, yet God opens the Red Sea, has them pass through on dry land. He gives them pure water from a dry rock. It's not like he took a pool of water and changed it. He gave a dry rock. I mean, what else do you need, right? We never do what they did. God gives them quail to eat and manna from heaven's kitchen, as one preacher puts it. 
shameful disobedience and unbelief is met, though, with the glorious redemption from Egypt and a climatic meeting between God and Moses at Sinai where God reveals his righteousness by giving the law and gives them the standard by which they'll live, by which they'll reflect their God who has saved them. He spoke these words in Genesis 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've done this for you. You're my people. I am your God. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself carved images of any likeness of anything that is in heaven and above or things on the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord won't hold them guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet your neighbor's house. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near, drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So what did the people do while Moses was talking to God? They made a golden calf, danced around worshiping it. What did God do? He continued to protect the nation and work his glorious plan of redemption. What did the people do when God promised them their land? They doubted and wandered for 40 years initially. What did God do? He raised up Joshua and gave them the land of Canaan. Human shame versus constant divine redemptive glory. And we see played out the shame of worldliness really through the book of Judges as the people of Israel do not fulfill God's command to wipe out all the nations that were in that land. They took the land. God gave them the land. They just didn't do their part in taking out the other religions and devotions in the land. And so they now started to suffer and be plagued by it. And throughout the book of Judges, you have this wandering nation that goes from this constant interplay of their shame, sin, and misery to God's redemption through a judge. And it builds with the naming of the best of all the human judges, Samuel, as he is born. We read at the end of Judges leading into the time of Samuel, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Then First Samuel begins with these words, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to a city. And he went through the process of picking a, a king, which was Saul first, who is a shameful example of what happens when you ask God to step aside and man to step in and do what only God can do. God gave them David and Solomon, but God also, in giving these men, he fulfilled promise, he gave them protection, but he also manifested the extreme frailty and brokenness and shamefulness of men. As man after man took the throne and failed, there's only a handful of kings we would even saw, say were good, and they weren't even that good when you analyze it. But against the backdrop of these human shameful kings, 
We have the promised coming of the one who would take the throne. In 2 Samuel 7, when he promises David that there will be a king who will be on your throne forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So God constantly, consistently takes broken misery of humanity and turns it into glory by redeeming it. And even in the days of the kings, there was a forecast of Christ who would come, the glory of the coming king. David ultimately showed his humanness. There would be a greater king to come, born in the city of David. We see the utter shame of, the utter failure and the shame that goes with it as Israel wanders through with its monarchy and it struggles with idolatry time and time again. Prophets warn them, don't turn from God, and they turn from God, and God disciplines them, and he reveals himself to them by deliverance sometimes, but then ultimately he gives them over to a disciplining occupation. A different nation splits Israel. They then go their own way. One eventually, though, towards the end, the southern kingdom, from which the, the tribe of Judah lived, and from which Messiah would come, he gives them into the hands of the Babylonians, and Jeremiah, the understandably weeping prophet, sees the decimation of Jerusalem, sees what's happened, and he speaks these words in, in Jeremiah 31. Behold, Jeremiah says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I mean, people are literally taking stuff in front of the prophet, robbing and pillaging. And Jeremiah says, there's a day coming though. And not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the last word we really get of the age of the prophets looking forward to the day that we come to remember this week. Hopefully remember all the time, but this week in particular. And we open the words of the New Testament. And in Matthew it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew gives a complete genealogy so we know from whence Jesus has come. And then we read in Matthew 2, So all the generation from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. But as he considered these things in chapter 2 of Matthew, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, Matthew writes, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us in Isaiah. Please, brothers and sisters, let none of us read the Christmas story this year and think it comes in a vacuum. It comes with decrees that were before time was invented. And time has been working by the sovereign God's hand with his providence, making whatsoever comes to pass so that his commitment before eternity would work itself out in the present and we still see it today as a new sinner comes to Christ on a regular basis. But there's a shame in the king's first coming, isn't there? That gives way to the glory of his life and work. In Luke 2, 
thinking of the person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, God, taking on flesh in order to make this happen. Luke 2, 1, In those days a decree went forth from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. This was the first registration where Quirinius was governor of Syria. They all went to be registered, each to his own, giving us the historical roots to what has happened here. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And it says in Luke 2, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And we know the shame of that story, that not only is he born into a family that was much maligned, poor, even in poverty, under the, under the cloud of, of sin that people thought he was conceived in, no doubt, to take on the form of the ones who have done nothing but sin and be shameful and act shamelessly, take the form of a bondservant in order to live as we could never live, shamelessly and sinlessly, the shame to become man, what glory to become man. He is our worthy sacrifice that proves it by doing what the first Adam did not do. And that's what brings us to Galatians 4 when it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, brother or sister. And if a son or if a daughter, then an heir through God. What does this mean? Great pastor, thanks for the history lesson. I appreciate it. Hey, the shame of ongoing sin still haunts every one of us. There's not a one of us here that's not sitting and thinking of the sin that is true of our own lives, the shame of it all. But what I hope this word speaks to you this day is that what God has done in sending his son in fulfilling his own plan and sending his son to live the glorious life of purity and perfection and then die for us on the cross, what that has done is it frees us from the shame and guilt of the sin that we still have. It's true you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. But shame and guilt is removed and put on Christ. There's a sense now which we can talk about this openly that I would, I would guess could not have been spoken of in the same way before Christ. I, I think his application of his redemption was still there, but I think the way people viewed sin could not be as clear until the coming of Christ and his taking of the sin from us. So I'm sure that someone sitting here saying to yourself, God could never love me because of what I have done. Maybe you're sitting thinking to yourself that my sin is so shameful, so great, I couldn't utter a word about it to anybody. God could not accept me or redeem me from this. Maybe you're here thinking that you're beyond God's repair. But I would say to you, after all we've considered, do you really think that? Do you really think that what you've done is worse than the sum total of everything that he has already spoken a word of redemption to? We think too highly of ourselves if we think that. There's no sin so great that this redemption, this glorious redemption provided by God, there's no sin that cannot be blotted out by what Christ has done. Not one. So please, don't just think of Christmas as some cute time where we go and race around trying to find gifts Monday and Tuesday. Or in my case, Tuesday. <laughs> hey, this is much deeper and greater than that. This is the total of what God has been working in this baby. I want to close with a passage that brings this home to us, and it's on your outline, the last passage written by Paul. The personal application, you might say, of what God has done for us. The reason why shame is taken away and replaced by glory is the person of Christ who we consider anew and afresh this day. 
Listen to the word of God, Colossians 1, verse 24 and following. They're listed on your outline. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and for in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. You might say, by the way, that's, that's a purpose statement for a pastor and for a church's ministry. And verse 26 follows. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, which we've just looked over briefly this morning. Verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery we're speaking of? It's Christ in you. What? Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not your, your identity is not shame anymore. It's glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, verse 28, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, for this, this is why I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. A broken and contrite heart God does not despise, but broken and contrite is different than ashamed. We're not ashamed anymore because we have Christ in us and he is the hope of glory. The ultimate interplay between shame and glory is Christ fulfilling, taking our shame away and giving us glory. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the fulfillment of all these things, that the fullness of time has come. And Lord, I pray that you would raise your people's heads high and that you would grow your church, that you would make us faithful to manifest to a watching world what broken people receive in redemption. And I pray, God, that this particular day that we consider the incarnation of Jesus in this week as we celebrate with family and friends, that we would never look the words of Luke 2 or in Matthew 1 and 2, as though they appear in a vacuum. It's just some Christmas special on TV. But rather that we would be in awe of what you have worked together to bring history to that point in what you continue to do daily. I pray, Lord, we'd be a changed people as a result. For your glory in Jesus' name, amen.